0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. I started this podcast for a very simple reason. You can find podcasts on pretty much any topic, but I wasn't aware of any that were focused on public service leaders. So rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I decided to give it a try. I wanted to give public service leaders a platform to tell their stories, to talk about the reforms and innovations they put in place, and to share lessons in leadership. I think this will be particularly interesting for current and future public service leaders, but a lot of the lessons are more broadly applicable. So I hope you enjoy it and please remember to register on the website to never miss a future episode. In this episode, I speak to Alison Reid. Alison is the Chief Executive of Community Dental Services. Firstly, if you thought dental services had completely shut down during the COVID-19 period, then think again. High street dentistry may have disappeared from our lives for a while, but community dental services, which provide for the most vulnerable, were still very much in action and had to adapt at breakneck speed. In this discussion, we get a first-hand account of how a frontline health service has responded to COVID-19. We take a deep dive into the leadership approach and the culture of CDS, and we also talked about how a specialist service like community dentistry finds its place in the new world of integrated care systems. And if you've ever wondered what it's like delivering dentistry services in a prison, then you'll find that out. So let's get started. Alison, you're very welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time for this, as I know it's a very very busy time for healthcare leaders, but I also know that you appreciate the need to communicate and share with others as well, so many thanks. Um, We obviously know each other uh, quite well, but I wonder if you could just start by introducing yourself.
1: Yeah, sure, Andrew. Um, I'm Alison Reed, and I'm currently the Chief Executive of Community Dental Services, which is a social enterprise and it's employee-owned. Um, my background really comes from really quite a broad breadth of experience, both as delivering clinical services when I started out as a physiotherapist many moons ago, working in hospitals, all the way through to becoming a commissioner of health and social care services, and then running an integrated health and social care trust that led me into 2011 where I got the experience and exposure of the opportunities for social enterprises but I didn't actually start in um, community dental services until 2013 they spun out in 2011 and we're looking for a chief exec so I'm not a founder chief exec but I'm very much a passionate advocate for what we've been doing since then.
0: And for those who, who don't know exactly what it is, I think every, everybody understands dentistry, but what is it exactly that you do at Community Dental Services?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, actually, Andrew. Uh, not, not a lot of people know about the middle bit of this sandwich as we describe it. So community dental services is a referral only service. So we're not on the high street. People can't just walk in to see us. We support people with very complex physical, mental health or learning needs. And that can be children, adults and older people. And we tend to have referrals directly from high street dentists who need that extra support to manage patients that they may be seeing. Um, Um, So it's not often the complexity of the dentistry that requires community dentistry, but it's the complexity of the individual's client or client's needs. Um, And that can go through from very high dental anxiety as well, or people that are in very socially disadvantaged situations. So we do tend to support an awful lot of people from very deprived and very challenging backgrounds.
0: Okay, and give us some examples of the types of service users you you would work with
1: yeah so as we, we work with an awful lot of children um, sadly uh, one of the biggest reasons for children being admitted into hospital to have a general anaesthetic is to have uh, teeth uh, that uh, extracted due to tooth decay which is a preventable disease so a lot of what we do is to raise the profile of what we need to do in communities to address oral health issues, identify how we can support children and their families and the carers. Um, So that's one of our key roles. We also support people with very complex learning needs who who may uh, have difficulty accessing a high street dentist and the team are very highly trained to deal with their medical complexity to support them in accessing dentistry and we will use a range of different methods to support them in Mm -hmm. having their dental care delivered including some sedation um, so that they uh, don't develop a fear of accessing the dentist. And then obviously we deal with people with mental health illness, um, uh, dementia um, and people who have substance misuse or alcohol misuse. So quite basically all of society that is uh, having a uh, complexity shall we say we yeah. would be ex- supporting our wider reach i suppose is in our oral health in that we are advocates for promoting oral health improvement and we do a huge education program and that is pan public so we would be going out to the communities to educate and working with schools and care settings uh, care homes etc to develop an understanding about why oral health is so important to general health.
0: Okay, and who who pays for your services? So yes. who would your main, your main commissioners be?
1: Well, I think that's one of our challenges, Andrew, because lots of people do. We're commissioned for the core service, from um, NHS England so that tends to be a regional commissioning role um, rather than a local one and we then are commissioned by um, local authorities which is much more local or place-based um, for their, As their responsibilities are to address the public health of a population, we are, we are commissioned by them to deliver oral health programmes and also to do something called epidemiology, which is a screening programme. And it's a set national protocol that we follow every year and we deliver that across a range of areas. And we also work with the Ministry of Justice in some prisons and in some supported and secure settings. And we then work with individual care homes and some partners in social enterprises and charities to, to, to increase our reach. Okay. So um, quite a wide uh, spectrum.
0: Yes, yes, it certainly is. So Alison, I was at my own dentist just before the second lockdown and it was quite an experience and I really felt for uh, the dentist and the dental nurse because they had to get fully dressed up in full PPE gear and the window was open and I just really felt for them because they obviously have to, to do this w- with every every patient. So I'm sure your staff are finding this really challenging at the minute. Yeah,
1: y- yes. Um, the The reason for that is because dentistry has a a series of procedures that are called aerosol generated procedures. So it could be some forms of the drilling or sometimes of the drying of the teeth, create droplet spread. And therefore they have to wear the same same sort of... um, uh, protection, clothing protection that you see uh, in the hospitals in ITU and on the television screens a lot. So our dentists are required to get in the same kit as that to protect them and obviously to protect patients. Yeah. And and that is really quite tricky when you've got a whole morning of those sorts of procedures to do. It's very hard going. And they, they, you know, that was one of the reasons why it took a little while to get this, everybody ready was because they had to re- evaluate all of their clinical um, uh, surgeries to ensure that they were f- fit for purpose and they had enough ventilation to be able yes. to draw away any of the um, droplet spread. And the windows are open as part of that ventilation, which of course in the summer was not too bad. Yeah. We had a lovely yeah. summer. Yeah. But now we're moving into winter. Some of them are, you know, they're really cold. And I've been been into the clinics, and they're bitterly cold to work in. So if you're in there for a whole morning, you know, standing, bending, and I can, it's going to be very uncomfortable for people. And yeah. I think that bit isn't really always talked about as much. Well, so I, it, is, it is challenging.
0: I know. Uh, I. I, I certainly appreciated it because i knew that we were having this conversation so i i was more aware of my surroundings in in the Mm -hmm. dentist than than maybe i previously would be no that's very interesting thank Mm -hmm. you for that cds is a social enterprise so what does that mean for anybody listening who who might not quite grasp exactly what that means because i think a lot of people will be used to traditional in-house delivery of public services and traditional outsourcing to the private sector, inverted commas. So so yeah. what is it about your model that, that is, is, is a bit different?
1: Yeah, well, we are the only one <laughs> in the country that is purely a social enterprise that focuses on community dentistry. I think we've got a colleague, Smile Together, in Cornwall that does some high street dentistry and uh, community. But um, why we're a social enterprise is because we feel that the money that comes from the public purse to invest in public services should be uh, used for just that. So everything we do and any surplus we are successfully making goes back into bigger projects that we can do. So some of the things I mentioned earlier about our work with charities and other social enterprises will be programmes that we have uh, uh, developed with them to deliver um, outreach programmes for rough sleepers. We have a charity that we've set up as well called CDS Action and the board uh, contribute, donates quite a sum of money to them that then they make decisions on how that's best spent to improve the health and wellbeing.
0: So the the charity is is a mechanism through which your organisation uses its surplus or, or profit, whereas a private sector organisation would obviously do different things with that?
1: Potentially, yes. I, I mean, I know many, we know many private companies that would yeah. like to, you know, they do so, have a social responsibility as well. But I think as is that we we don't have a share, we have employee owners who hold all of the one pound share, but they don't have a dividend. That, that the, the surplus is always committed back to patient services, or to wider community benefit.
0: Great. Um, so you, I think you, you've been the chief executive for seven years or so there. So what what has the journey of CDS been like over that time? Have you have you expanded uh, and grown, or uh, what's the tra- trajectory been like?
1: Well, we started off quite small um, as a uh, really a service that had come out of the NHS as a department and been set
0: up as a company.
1: So that was a brave step.
0: Where was it originally based?
1: Bedford, yes, in Bedford. Yes, so so its its origin was in Bedford. And then they were successful in winning another contract in Suffolk. So that was quite geographically distant. And at that point, we realized that if we looked at the income that we had and the costs, we were gonna be running into a deficit within the next two years. And that was around the time I joined. So we we agreed as a a board and as a senior team that we needed to look at growth as part of our strategy to be able to both have more impact in in improving people's oral health, which was our commitment and our passion. There's a huge correlation between uh, poor oral health and poor social outcomes, uh, poor uh, long term conditions such as respiratory disease, diabetes and cardiac disease can be compromised by poor oral health and the fact that so many children were having so many extractions so young also impacts on their education attainment and things of that nature so we felt very passionately that growth would help us to get our voice to market so to speak yeah. because we're very much um i would say young in our journey you know two three years in and understanding what we needed to do and what we needed to develop to be good at at, at that And I would say we've been exceptionally successful um, in achieving growth. Um, We've been reaching into further communities and we now cover the East Midlands and a lot of the East of England in our community dental services contracts. We have um, contracts with prisons, which we didn't have when we started. We deliver some out of our services to support that whole care package. And um, we've reached out with our oral health programme to a similar geography of the East Midlands and east of England with some slightly more outreach into Oxfordshire, etc. So, yeah, huge expansion. Yeah,
0: very much so. Very impressive. Um, What is it you think that commissioners particularly like about your model when you're tendering for new work?
1: Yeah, um, well, we always think it's our passion, Andrew, our complete passion for what we do. I, I think also because we're only focused on community dentistry, we're not part of a much bigger company that's got other priorities that conflict potentially with what we're trying to do. We've been quite innovative and the teams have been exceptional really here. I mean, I, I always say, you know, we're, we work as a team that I've, I've been very privileged to have a group of um, people that to work around that really care about what they do they're very passionate about the support that they provide to their patients and the the wider uh, community they really see their part in that and i think conveying that and also the innovation we've introduced because we we wanted to make sure that our investments were to improve the caliber of care that we could deliver So we have invested in a sustained manner across our clinics to make sure that they're, uh, you know, really meeting the best quality standards. We have access to equipment. That means that people can be supported increasingly in a clinic setting. So it reduces the anxiety for patients of having to be seen in different places. Uh, As I mentioned, we have to often see people under a general anaesthetic, which requires them to go to hospital well, our goal is to reduce the numbers of people that need that. And we have been successful in doing that by building up our sedation skills and having access to all sorts of other support care for people.
0: Um, And I just want to move on now to talking about your experience over the past six months during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think a lot of people Probably thinking about uh, high street dentists would have assumed that dental services had pretty much closed down during the the pandemic, at least at the start. But that's not entirely true, is it? Or at all true in your case?
1: No, Andrew. And, and, And it's tough, actually, for the workforce when they hear that, because I think it was the polar opposite for many, actually. Um, I think uh, the, the the real the messaging was that dentistry was closed, but it wasn't. We we obviously routine dentistry couldn't continue. Um, it would have been irresponsible during the lockdown. But I think from the week of March the 16th to the 23rd, we knew that we were preparing, and then literally on the lockdown date, we had to effectively establish urgent dental care services across the whole of the areas we covered so we needed at least nine now that required everybody to get access to quite high levels of PPE which is you know the uh, protective clothing also to make sure that we could bring patients safely into a setting and navigate them through it without compromising any other areas we ran what we call hot sites which are dealing with people who potentially would have COVID-19 so, it was important for us because of our skill sets that we offered that support because we can manage patient complexity. But that required us to have uh, almost like um, uh, clean areas throughout so people could be safely seen without risk of cross contamination. And that took a huge amount of effort during a period where guidance was coming in. Thick and fast. Um, some of the information that we needed was a little bit slower than we'd have liked so we were having to make what I would describe as um, decisions in the best interests and our view was that we would always make decisions in the best interests of our patients and our workforce so we required the top-notch of uh, PPE to protect our employees and also to pa- protect our patients from risks of contamination. And, um, i suppose andrew what i would reflect is that cds's response to covid was part of a bigger system so dentistry was working offering remote triage to their patients and then with commissioners and other dental practices and community services we were part of the response that offered 600 outlets for urgent dental care across england for the whole of the covid um, lockdown period and then gradually moved back out into offering our services once they had got themselves prepared to meet patients on site i'm really proud of the work that people did i had employees driving counties to get uh, the right equipment. I had them scouring every single website you could think of to get access to the right levels of PPE. Um, it was a hit really Herculean effort. And uh, credit to them, we, we opened the first clinics on uh, at Easter, which was less than two weeks after the national lockdown. And we are still running some of them. I mean, one of our biggest challenges, I think, is that because of the variations we have across England at the moment, it, there is still a need to support people who have complex uh, needs. And we are finding that uh, some patients, because they've had delays in accessing care, have got very, very complex requirements. Uh, their health condition has deteriorated at, along with their dental condition. So it has been a really challenging time and it has been unrelenting. Yeah. So. You know six months when you said it i thought oh is it only six
0: months yeah <laughs> yes. it's
1: not a lot longer but it's also felt that like it's gone really quickly it's, yeah it's strange you know yeah. I, I i feel like we're in that virtual reality sort of experience of oh i'm back here again <laughs>
0: indeed indeed. i mean before we started recording you and i were we talking about you know, this notion of the six-month wall and how the first six months are, are hard but you can get through them and it's now at this point where you're looking forward can't quite see the end. Um, I think um, just that, that was a really interesting um, and enlightening account of what extra effort you've had to put in to keep those services going and I think it speaks a lot to your organisational culture which I want to ask you about now. So, Um, And I know that you have a very interesting shared leadership culture at CDS. Um, Can you say a little bit more about that and the importance of the fact that you're an employee owned organization as well?
1: Yeah this is something that I've had a very passionate commitment to throughout my career um, in that I believe that people who are uh, in front of patients or delivering direct care do know what's best and do have the experience and capability to make good decisions if they're given the freedom to act and so our aspiration was to support people to deliver that and our dental values which are Uh, that's our acronym dental, um, are all about engaging with everybody, nurturing each other, being trusted to do the right thing. And the importance of that, which came from the workforce, enabled us really as as a senior leadership team to develop what we describe as shared leadership, which is a recognition that any decision that the executive or I make as the leader of the business is Founded in the principles of supporting people to make the best decisions they can, as close to patients as the, as possible, it gives them the uh, that they're in control of the budgets that they have. They're in control of their performance. They're in control of how they run their services. And that's very much shaped to patient needs. So that collaboration with local communities is a really important thing. You know, we have a really good example of that. We work with some some faith communities who found the clinic times, the usual Monday to Friday, nine to five NHS style, just didn't work with their requirements. And so in collaboration, we changed that. Um, you know, to, to be uh, an afternoon to evening service so that it fitted better in with their need, needs to meet their faith requirements. And, you know, it meant that we got much higher um, attendance rates because uh, people who don't attend clinic appointments was very high in dentistry. And so we managed to reduce ours from about 12 to 15 percent down to things like three, 6 to 7 percent, which is you know, it means we're seeing more people, which is fantastic, um, yeah. and we can deliver right care. And that that's that, that experience then gets replicated, and people share it.
0: Yeah. Um. So that that approach requires you, you and your your leadership team, to be able to face a crisis and still be as empowering and trusting and hands off as you would be in normal times. How did you manage that?
1: That's a real yeah. Well, not everybody does. <laughs> I'll be very honest, you know, letting go does 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 take a little bit of practice, you know, but I think it's, it's if it's founded in the right principle that, you know, we trust people, we've trained them well, we've given them the right support tools. They flag to us when they feel they need help. And I think uh, COVID is a really good example of that because we were having daily calls. So, you know, it's not that we just leave them to run off and do their own thing. And, you know, I think that's often a misunderstanding. Shared leadership does mean you still have a rule book. You You do have to operate within a framework. You're very clear about your governance requirements. And during COVID, the way that we approached that was we had daily calls to make sure we were touching base, asking questions. Did anybody want to raise anything? They were open to the whole company to be available so that they could flag any worries or concerns they had. And that way it meant that if there was ambiguity, if there was a lack of clarity about anything coming out about guidance, we could have the debate and then we'd agree what was in the best interests. And if there was a little bit of a difference of opinion we'd say right we'll go away we'll we'll look into that and we'll come back to you with a with a position and that way we were able to give direction but in a collaborative manner but we were not slowing things up and i think that's the important thing there were occasions because of that that you had to be more directive than you'd normally have chosen to be and so we, we, we did a temperature about three months in and the feedback at that point was that they'd like us to step back a bit now? That they were feeling that they'd got they, they got the measure of things, and they would ask for and um, as it's gone. And we we slow we we stopped the uh, daily calls. We dropped those down to weekly. Then we dropped them to two weekly. And you know we've got a keep in touch session that people can get in touch with. So I think the the culture is very much about enabling people to work with that with colleagues in their local system.
0: No, I, I recognize some of that even from our own experience in Mutual Ventures, where we started with daily calls with the leadership team. We had weekly team team sessions, and we've reduced that right down now, as people have kind of said, we don't need to talk every day now because we're in the flow. Um, The culture that you have in CDS, I mean, this crisis will have tested the culture of every organization in the country. Do you think that that culture being in place has given the organisation more resilience to deal with something like this?
1: Yes, I do. I do. Because I think what it's done is it's given people the um, control. And one of the things that I think we hear all of the time is that the one thing people desire above all else is to have the freedom to make decisions in the right way. And in that, we have given people the freedom to work as flexibly as possible around the the constraints of delivering healthcare. Um, And we've we've given them the right tools to be able to do that. So um, within two weeks of our starting, we had given everybody access to remote video consultation um, equipment so that they could See patients, they could do remote triage, they were set up to do that. And that was really escalating our IT technology uh, uh, mobilisation. We were doing quite a lot of work to improve how we worked te- with tech, but this moved it to a different scale, Andrew. I mean, we'd got oral health teams who would have been doing face to face training, who set everything up online through social media platforms within two months.
0: Yeah. And I think um, some some assume that leaders in public services are somehow superhuman and can handle anything. But I imagine having this type of culture is better for your own resilience and your leadership team's resilience and helps you as a group not become completely overwhelmed having to micromanage everything.
1: Um, There's two bits to that. I think the first thing is that we have invested quite heavily in health and wellbeing support um, across the business so that people understand their own resilience and their own responsibility. And I think in shared leadership, there is a huge emphasis on personal responsibility and personal um, ownership of their own challenges. But then I think what we have done is created an environment where people can be very open about when they're not coping. There's absolutely no doubt that the 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 pressure of doing homeschooling, working from home, treating, seeing patients remotely that you'd normally be seeing face to face had huge challenges. And then the mobilisation to what they're calling restoration and recovery has not been smooth. It's been quite complex. And people, as you say, have got to the different points where we found people coming in at different waves um, of of feeling tired and fatigued. So I think the fact that we've got that open culture has helped people and that they've got access to specialist support if they do need it but there's no doubt that for senior leaders it has been really tiring too because one of the responsibilities I think we've all taken very deeply is being visible, being clear, communicating regularly and ensuring that people know that we know the challenges that they're facing and we're empathetic to those and so one of the things i'm uh we're just kicking off at the moment is uh, an inquiry i'm describing it as into what we need to change in the business to create more depths and breadth in terms of our capacity um is it around our training programs is it about the systems and processes that work fine when you're a seven million business but at 29 million near enough you you know it begins to creak a bit so what are the things that we need to adapt and change and are there things that we were doing that have made it more difficult or easier for people so you know being very upfront about the fact i don't have all the answers you know yeah. i'm really keen to understand what people's experience has been
0: yeah and that 7 to 29 that that's been the growth roughly speaking over the past seven years yeah um so that's obviously included bringing on a lot of new employees as you've as you've won new contracts so it's obviously very important that those new people joining the cds team understand the culture because over time a really strong culture can be chipped away at with new people joining and them bringing their old culture with them so what do you do with new new people joining the team in order that they do really understand that culture
1: Well, one of of the things I would say is you learn your lessons. (laughs) So initially, I think we were a little bit, you know, we'd share our values, we would talk about them and just think that they just naturally get imbibed into a business. and, And what we observed is that it needs much more than that. It needs to be part of a structured induction programme. And so we have a really comprehensive induction programme that talks about values, our, our values, explores with the uh, those that are joining us, how they think those are, can be applied, whether there's anything that they feel is missing about our values that they would identify with, so that we can really in- make sure that they've intuitively understood what it means to be part of CDS. We explore with them the behaviours that we have, which are around being generous, bold, inclusive. So they've understood, again, what the expectation is on each and every one of them. They may have transferred from a public sector body, but in working for us as employee owners, there's an extra responsibility, which is to ensure that they adhere to our behaviours. And yeah. um, we will hold them to account for those. So we are very clear on that. It's not a it's not a squeegee thing. <laughs> it's yeah. quite clear. It's got boundaries. And then um, we do we do we have a first line leadership program um, that we develop people through uh, over over a period. So it's not just about their clinical competency but it's about their ability to work with people manage people support each other um we feel all of those are quite key things and that does tackle you know how to have a challenging conversation because we feel if people don't know how to broker challenges you know we're dealing with that in our everyday lives so trying to support that transference of skill sets so a one week in to lockdown, we had to transition over 150 people into CDS remotely. <laughs> by- Was by this, was this on a
0: contract that you'd won or- a, a, Yes,
1: we'd yeah. won contracts that started at the same time. So right. there were two services in two different geographies with two different IT systems, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> with different pr- permissions, um, being, uh, being a, a joint joining the business. So. Um, it, that was really challenging uh, on one level one would think but I actually found it liberating for, for me to run something like that because the questions that were coming up showed huge engagement across the 150 people you know we had we had over 138 people a day signing in and engaging with the conversation and asking questions and I reflected that if I tried to do that in a hotel conference facility yes. and welcome them for an afternoon the likelihood of me having more than four or five hands put up to ask a question would have been about it so yeah. we really did feel that people really got what they were joining um, we do do a lot of work before uh, they transition to understand the culture of cds we have a transitions team that is clinical that goes up to work alongside um, those teams that are coming across so they really get what we're about and don't see us as being scary and frightening and uh, going to damage or uh, all the great things they do.
0: Gosh you, you, you were dealing with the start of the pandemic as well as the start of two new contracts that required the onboarding of staff so I think either of those two things would be, <laughs> would be hard enough so um, yeah it sounds sounds like a really challenging and I don't know if rewarding is the right is the right word, but it sounds like I mean that you you got through that well as an organization and have emerged as well as uh, as could be expected at this point,
1: yeah, I think it. I'm reflecting now um, to you. We, last week, we had what we call our CDS day, which is our employee day. So it involves every single person in the business. Now, normally, again, we would have been in a big conference centre now. We're nearly 500 workforce now. So that would have been quite a huge undertaking because we knew that was not going to be possible. We put a call out to say we'd like every service to do something uh, reflecting what they are most proud of and to use whatever no um, medium they wanted to communicate that but trying to avoid PowerPoint mm. so that they could uh, be as creative as they liked we try and give them as much resources and Andrew it was really awesome the feedback you know we got very very good uh, communication on a, a range of levels from how they were supporting each other how they were delivering complex care to patients and doing some fantastic animated cartoons on on welcoming a child into a clinic um to, to interviews with each other about how tricky it was for them in in certain aspects but how well they were supported by their teams to yeah. some fun dance videos and what I what stepping back from that you know that was with two teams that had only joined us in april and they yeah. didn't incredible job of conveying how they were working and it really gave us a really strong sense of their teamwork a real strong sense of their commitment to each other and to patients which is what we're about we're here to serve patients we're here to make sure that we can do the best for our communities and to promote oral health and you know our oral health team did a fantastic Um, brush-a-thon sort of like raising awareness about how to improve oral health so you know some very good stuff.
0: I I was going to ask you what a -a brush-a-thon is there but then you mentioned oral health and I I get it now yeah I get it. Can I I just ask you about um, your thoughts on how the needs of an organization in terms of leadership and its functions and where those functions sit evolve uh, as it grows? Yeah um, and I think
1: that again this is one of the things that some chief execs have said to me it sounds very scary because you know you don't you can't know i mean i think we've got uh something like 50 odd clinics now working across two regions um you know and I can't tell you this morning or this afternoon the absolute specificity of who's in there doing what. What I do know from the work that they do and the feedback that we get and the performance and evidence that we have is that those those clinics work really well. They perform exceptionally well. They get uh, unbelievable patient feedback, 98% positive to to 100% positive feedback. We very very rarely get anything negative said, which is Uh, incredible we do try and chase down anything negative i have to say because we think it's important that people feel comfortable to report anything and so when we look at the needs of leadership i i think the conversation we're having as we're looking at um the skill base of our workforce and encouraging um skill you know skill mix across every sector so that we've got people that have got the skill skills to develop and we can create those career portfolios we're recognising that we need to um, have that conversation. And that yeah. links into the inquiry I was saying, because it's all too easy in a way for somebody to say, oh, you just need one of these or you need one of that. But yeah. I, I felt I wasn't sure whether that was where we need to go next. And what we need to do is understand what, what the workforce feels needed. And that will help to give a much more sustainable model for us into the future. Yeah. Um, we, we are... Obviously, reviewing our head office use as an example, because we're querying whether actually everybody traveling across to head office is is going to be the model for the future now. We're much more used to a blended approach, I think, and trying to understand what that might look like.
0: Yeah. You have described one of your strengths as an organization that, that you are a specialist. And that this is something that commissioners really value so anybody listening to this conversation with a health background or involved in services linked to health will understand that there's a drive from government commissioners to try and integrate services and in some ways to simplify contracting so how does your service and its specialist nature fit into all of that
1: yeah Yeah, Andrew, I think that's a real conundrum for us as a a business is that because obviously some of our services are very much place based. So our work with the communities around our oral health programmes, our prevention and addressing health inequalities really resonates with their strategic goals. The biggest other issue is that um, we're not commissioned by place-based services. We're commissioned by a region that does link with the uh, sustainable and transformation planning footprints. But the role of dentistry is very much a, a, a minor component of that. And so we're finding it really difficult to identify roads into it. But what we're trying to do is raise awareness about the fact that if we do not improve oral health, We have ongoing risk consequences, what we call common risk factors for those that are susceptible to diabetes, respiratory and cardiac disease. We also think there's an increasing correlation to some other disease factors. And oral cancer is one of the growing cancers in this country because it's very difficult to detect unless it's seen by a dentist. So that 50 percent of adults that don't access a dentist regularly are at risk you know and um, as we've got access issues for um, for people to dentistry particularly in rural and coastal areas specialist services become almost like the default service provider Mm -hmm. and our challenge is that then we are stretched because we can't meet the needs of our complex client groups and the general population uh, as readily Mm -hmm. Um, and so just trying to look at how we do that one of our really strong roles is is advocacy for uh, community fluoridation of the water because we have such a low level of fluoride in our water across the country you know birmingham is a notable exception that was fluoridated in in, in this um sort of like 60s and it has got a legacy of of healthier teeth as a result compared with other places. So, yeah. that's, you know, that's a public health intervention that would make a real difference.
0: Yeah. Um. So th- these are extremely powerful points. And are you finding that as the rest of the health system is distracted in some ways by self-preservation and identifying their own place in the new the new world are you finding that you, you have a voice in those conversations and that you're you're that you're able to engage and uh, and be taken seriously as a as a social enterprise
1: um, not always I, I think I'd be honest, I think it's it's, you know, that's one of the things that's quite challenging. You know, as a as a chief exec, you know, your role is very much to work on the business, not in it. And, and to be an advocate for why you're important, what what role you play. And, and And in a way, that's easier if you can do that strategically. But you also have to be able to do that locally. So when we talk about voice, one of the things that I think is challenging for dentistry as a whole is it's, off, it's commissioned separately from healthcare. So nationally, one of the key things CDS has done in growing and becoming a larger community dental service is try to represent itself um, and speak for others at a national level in recognising the links to general health and the implications of that for, for uh, commissioning. And then regionally, we're working with commissioners and more of our dental colleagues in looking at what improvements we can make to dental services through dental networks and clinical networks that we form in that way. And that brings together a wider range of our workforce to work collectively to improve the patient pathway And then locally in place-based commissioning, we are very much looking at the needs of the person and working with partnerships in terms of our local authority colleagues, third sector and health and care colleagues to try and ensure that we really are thinking about what are the interventions that would best improve the the life experience of these individuals. And that's a very challenging dynamic When you're quite a small company in many ways, trying to ensure that the voice for uh, oral health is heard.
0: I see. No, That's that's very interesting.
1: So one of the big sectors that we feel we can contribute to that would help CCGs or integrated care systems is around care homes and supporting them in in improving their nutrition. Um, Because obviously, if you've got poor oral health, you're unlikely to be eating well. And that has significant consequences for the elderly at uh, all of those in a supported living accommodation who have got complex needs. So we 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 are really raising the bar in raising awareness about that. But I think the uh, there is an interest in that in some areas, but I think for many CCGs or integrated care systems, the challenge they've got is so huge that I, I'm quite c- concerned that we make sure that we've got enough momentum going yeah. from a regional perspective to support these systems changes that then can slowly be embedded in time into local systems when they've got a bit more maturity because my experiences were such a small bit of the challenge that it would be very easy to ignore it and that for me has has been the issue for community dentistry is it's never really had a voice people often will refer to dentistry as high street dentists and we're not we're mainly an employed workforce who are actually there to do that, as I said, dealing with people with complex needs. So they are a client group that often has the least voice and we're trying to create a voice.
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely understand that. And uh, and I think those challenges are far from unique to your service. You know, mm. community services of all sorts across the country are, are uh, engaged in this discussion, trying to find their place in all of this. And I think it is just so important that the importance of those services are appreciated at every yeah. level, really. So, um, yeah, no, I think that was a really interesting perspective. Just just out of interest, how, how do you deliver your uh, your dentistry services in, in prisons? Do you have a fixed location in, this, in the prison that, that you work from, or do you have a mobile unit that you bring in, or, or how, how does it work?
1: Well, we do both, actually. Okay. So, In a lot of the prisons that um, they do have a fixed resource because obviously there are some challenges with what equipment you can take in and out of a prison. You have to make sure that all of the the, uh, items that you use are securely locked away and there's very very clear procedures that the team have to follow to protect themselves and to reduce risks to others um, and but that the, and they work really closely with the governors they work very closely with the um, wider healthcare team so it's a really good example of integrated working um, they yeah. share the records so that people uh, know what's going on there and then in some of the um, uh, supported uh, Offending uh, areas, we we will go to, to those units with our mobile um, yeah. and uh, see them in those facilities. That's been a bit trickier during lockdown because of the concerns about bringing in uh, a vehicle. So that's taken us a little while to get back up and running, but we're now doing that, and uh, it's been a really successful piece of work. We started off uh, with that as a as a support program, and then we've been picking up that. Or improving oral health in young people is very important it changes their attitude about themselves their self-esteem their opportunities for work bizarrely because yeah, um, yeah. And, and and so it has huge ongoing consequences and of course part of our social impact then is how we work with the outreach teams to make sure that there's access for them on an ongoing basis when they transition into a, a community setting.
0: Wow. Okay. That's that's really interesting. Thank you. So, Alison, as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working either in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who wants to make the sort of impact that you have managed to make?
1: Yeah. My advice would be just do it. Be confident, believe in your team, work with them, give them the right information to make good decisions and uh, set set a clear direction so they understand what they can contribute and that will help them to make, uh, you, you can trust them. As a leader, I think your challenge is to support and enable people to do the very best. And as long as the rationale is there, the evidence is there for what they're trying to do, we should be trying to create a culture that's much more empowering
0: I I think what what I found working in public services is that it is is possible to achieve a lot of that from within the public sector but it does require the right leadership and I think what uh, CDS and and other organisations that have moved out of the public sector have experienced is that moment in time where there's an opportunity to wholesale change things Mm -hmm. and whereas if you're doing it with an organisation or a service that's that's within the public sector or has been in the same state for a long time. It's harder to make that change and it has to to be more gradual sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think I think you're um, you did a webinar, didn't you, last week, Danny Kruger. And uh, one of the things that was being reflected there was the incredible power in communities and their ability to make some significant changes and and almost the need to step back and allow that to happen is so important you know and not interfere I mean oh my gosh you know that that's so important you know to set be really clear about what you expect as an outcome and then just allow it to be and I think that's the role of a commissioner to be honest is to set what you want to achieve but to allow providers to make the decisions about how they do that and, um, you know, I felt very strongly as a commissioner, that was my aspiration always, to set yeah. the what we want from the outcome, but not to tell them how to do it. And I think that as a leader is so important as well. You know, uh, I don't think anybody really likes to be told how to live their lives. But what you might do is say, well, actually, the outcome you could achieve if you were to consider some of these things might be really helpful keep people informed, give them good quality data, you know, and that starts to help people to make informed choices. You know, you can't make choices if you've got no information.
0: Yeah. Alison, thank you very much. That's all we have time for.
1: Well, I am really flattered and honoured that you've asked me to do this, Andrew, and I do hope there's some learning for others in what we've done. Um, you know, I'm really always happy to share our approach um, for people to come and see it in action because, you know, what I say and what what it, what it feels like is so important for people to see. So thank you very much indeed.
0: Great. Thank you very much. So I got a huge amount from that conversation. I think what really shines through from that interview is Alison's belief in her team and belief in, in people in general. And that uh, embodies itself really in the organisational culture that Alison has put in place in CDS. At the start of the COVID-19 crisis, they did have to be a little bit more, I suppose, command and control. But as soon as staff indicated that they were comfortable and that they could get back to working as they normally worked, the leadership team backed off and gave them that space again. So very quick to get back to that empowerment and trusting frontline staff I think it was also very interesting to hear what allison was saying about the process they go through when they bring new people on board um, as we said in the interview if new people join with their own ideas of what the culture should be and maybe importing their older organization's culture then that can really chip away at your organization's culture and what you're trying to achieve so that idea of having a very focused period of induction with new joiners to make sure that they get what CDS is all about was critical. And finally, I think this is an excellent example of a service, a team, an organization that you might not immediately think of, but nevertheless has been working harder than ever to serve the communities that they support. And we should all be very grateful. So thank you for listening to this episode. And please remember to subscribe on the website to never miss a future episode.